I'm John Bomarito. This is Acoustic Alternatives from Grove Studios in Ypsilanti. Grove Studios is a place that if you're in the Ann Arbor, Detroit area, and you're looking for a place to practice, if you've got a band, or a, maybe you're a DJ, or maybe you're a podcaster like I am, it's a place that you can rent 24-7, keypad operation, and they've been very kind to me in the last couple of years on letting me do my podcast here. I guess anybody can do the podcast here, not letting me do the podcast here, but introducing me to the idea, and I'm really grateful for them, because otherwise I don't get to visit with some of my favorite singer-songwriters and expose the world to them and learn a little bit more about them. And one of those is Chuck Brodsky, and he's here today. Hello, Chuck. Hi, John. Good to see you again. It's been a long time. It is, but it's great to be back. I should have looked at uh, the last session we did together in Ann Arbor, but I I didn't do that this time. But uh, it's been at least, I'm going to say, eight years or something ridiculous like that. But most of my CDs in your collection that I own are signed. So there's just a few that have come out since then. This one and this one and this one. And we're going to talk a bit about your latest record and uh, your back story, too. I do like to start with a song, however, because you are here to play music. So I think it's going to be something from the new album, is it not? It is. It's the title track, in fact. All right. Chuck Brodsky on Acoustic Alternatives. Just a simple song About a couple of wings About gravity And its effect on things With just one wing You go flapping around But you'd never be able To get off of the ground Takes two wings Maybe a prayer If you do take off Just to stay in the air Whether you start from here Or you start from there Takes two wings To go anywhere Takes two wings Or it won't fly straight It'll just stay stuck In a figure eight Points of view We can debate But it takes two wings Or it won't fly straight With two wings You can look down At the angry mob Terrorize in the town And you might see things Like you never could With two wings You might even see some good of grace It takes trust Luck and skill Takes two wings And a little goodwill Just a simple song About a couple of wings About gravity And heavy things You'll have your scrapes And you'll get your dings 
Brodsky on Acoustic Alternatives, It Takes Two Wings. The album's called Gravity Wings and Heavy Things. The title is mentioned in that song, and uh, it's available on this album in two versions. Piano, originally your first instrument. Is that not true? It is true. I started playing piano when I was um, a toddler, and my parents saw this, my aunt and my grandparents saw this, and so I was encouraged and started playing just, you know... Uh, gravitating towards it and pushing keys and trying to establish little melodies. And so the family decided to enroll me in piano lessons when I was five years old, and I took them throughout most of my grade school years, although I don't think I really use any of what I learned there, <laughs> honestly. But um, I did learn to play by ear as a little kid. And, and my very first gigs in my life, probably the first 10 of them, uh, when I went to university, were all exclusively on piano because mm. I, I didn't start playing guitar until that time, until college. And when I got one, uh, well, even before I got one, I understood I needed to get one. I understood that it would have been pretty impossible back in those days to be a traveling musician, piano-playing songwriter because digital pianos hadn't been invented yet. And the condition of each piano, venue to venue, really would vary. Sometimes they'd be horribly out of tune. Sometimes keys wouldn't work. And I just understood immediately, literally first day of university, that I needed to get a guitar and I needed to switch over to it. And it was going to be a very long-term proposition, years and years, put myself on a 10-year plan. And then as I traveled... I moved around a bit, too. It wasn't possible to own a piano. Uh, some a couple of times I was able to rent one for short periods of time. But I really I went many, many years without being able to play one consistently, and I lost my confidence and my some of my skills. And then the pandemic hit, and I had two whole years to be home playing my digital piano and... I got comfortable on it again, and now I'm just going for it. I'm trying to do a couple or a few songs on piano every show, and I hope to even expand on that in the future. Some of the venues you show up to must have pianos. Like I know some of the venues I go to just have a house piano. Yeah, and some of them have very nice pianos, but at this point, I think I prefer playing the digital pianos just because there's a consistency, especially if I can play my own and bring it with me. The one I own weighs 24 pounds, so it's very easy. And that way I get the same playability, the same tones, everything's familiar about it. Um, You know, and and, and for a guitar player to have to suddenly play a show with somebody else's guitar, it's the same principle. Um, You would have to make adjustments on the fly, piano to piano to piano. And so even when they have really beautiful pianos in a venue, I still 
more often than not would bring my own digital and tend to want to play that. Comfort. Comfort is is entirely what I'm after. Because if I'm comfortable, then I'm free. Yeah. Then it'll come out good. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were briefly touching on your five-year-old self. I'd like to stay in that part of your life for a little bit to talk about your childhood growing up in Philly, because you're wearing the Philly's hat. Yes. Uh, clearly, uh, well, this is recording on day two of the World Series. They haven't played yet, but so far the Phillies are leading one nothing. Uh, you grew up in Philadelphia as one of how many kids? Are you? Are you? A, uh, there were three of us. Three of you. Okay. Yeah, I was the oldest. And did you have an influence on the others, or was it kind of a the parents kind of led you to music? I don't know that I had an influence on my sisters. Certainly not musically. Uh, one of my sisters took guitar lessons for a couple years, but. I think guitar is an exceptionally difficult instrument for a kid. Um, you don't get the same kind of instant gratification that you can get on a piano. Mm -hmm. You can just simply press one key and enjoy the sound of that key or press two <laughs> keys together. But the the pain involved on your fingertips, building up your calluses, and if your starter guitar has high action and is very difficult to play, you can't make nice sounds. Even a pro can't make nice sounds on a guitar with really high action. So I think that causes a lot of kids to give up too early, and it caused my sister to give up a bit early. Uh, my other sister just never was musically inclined, but uh, one of them became a fantastic artist and ceramicist and is doing really well professionally with that. Nice. So, um, you know, I was the odd duck. The cool thing is, though, I have a niece that is a very, very accomplished classical musician and composer, and she's young, she's in her 20s. But she was recognized, um, you know, as young as 14. Her compositions were performed by adult orchestras, mm -hmm. and she taught at Interlochen wow. at the age of 16, you know. So I paved the way, and for her, being a musician was uh, not a case of her being a black sheep like in like it was with me initially i won everybody in my family over but with her she had um she had that she had that uncle that had blazed the trail before her and so music was already an acceptable profession and so it's it's really wonderful to see i've um, encouraged her and been in a position to draw out the improv, improvised, sorry, first day with the new lips, the improvisational skills, and have had her sit in with me a few times live, and I've had her play on uh, two of my last three CDs. Nice. Very so, cool. You know, it's fun to be in that position to offer her an opportunity to stretch her out a little. Cool. What kind of things did you do as a kid to keep busy besides poking around on the piano? Did you have other hobbies? Well, I was really into sports, and we lived across the street from a junior high school. We lived on a corner, and there were ball fields across the street on both sides. There was uh, a parking, a, a blacktop parking lot that I could roller skate on and play street hockey on. There were tennis courts across the street that we could play street hockey and <laughs> roller hockey on. And so there was always something going on in one of those fields, whether it, 
it was uh, people my age playing that I could join in or adults playing, but there was always activity around. And, you know, that was an era where kids were free to say, bye, mom, going out. Come See, back when the streetlights are on. Yeah, kind of thing. So Yeah, that's, I'm a little younger than you, but. So I explored, you know, just got on my bike and rode and, and entertained myself and found things to do. And yeah, it was great. It was great. I, I think it was a pretty ideal situation for a young kid. Did you ever break anything that would have affected your ability to play piano or guitar? Like, No, in- fortunately. I never broke a bone until I had a motorcycle accident in my young 30s. Hmm. And that was a ankle. So Didn't affect your guitar playing. <laughs> no, in fact, uh, I had two years of uh, recuperation, a couple of surgeries and stuff, and so I had lots of time practice. To, to practice. <laughs> it, it actually improved my guitar playing quite a bit those two years. And, and that was that was actually the point that I first launched into doing this professionally. Oh. Because uh, the, the job that I had was forced to replace me, you know, after being out for two years and when I was finally through all the physical therapy and had fully healed and the unemployment insurance had run out I made the leap been making records for about 30 years now your first cassette to your first CD has been about 30 years yeah when did you actually launch like were you in your 20s at that point I was 32 when I first started touring and I was 35 when I put out my first CD. That's a little late for most people. It is, but it was because of that transition from piano to guitar at the age of 19. And I told myself it was going to be about 10 years. And I I just decided if I, if I work this hard every day at it, because I was seeing measurable improvement. And so I just figured if I continue, and I keep seeing more and more improvement, it's probably going to be about 10 years because it wasn't just a matter of the guitar skills. It was also wanting to not try to launch a professional career until I felt like I had two full sets of songs that I believed in, that I, that I thought were strong enough because you only get one chance to make a first impression. And mm-hmm. I've seen way too many people go out there with one really good song. <laughs> And that's, and that's it. it. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't want to be that guy. And so, you know, I think in hindsight, it that served me really well. Because when I did start doing this, uh, apparently I made some good first impressions and, and things went well for me. Got a pretty good deal, record deal on the right label, the right kind of label for you, for yeah. sure, to, yeah. to be exposed to the right audience, the right yeah. radio audience. Yeah. So you got lucky. I got very lucky. I'm, I'm glad you did, because I, I really have enjoyed your career. And uh, glad that we've had a chance to visit a couple of times. Continuing to think about your background in Philly, and I'm thinking about the music scene that you probably heard growing up, which would have been the Philly sound. Uh, Patti LaBelle, Harold Melvin, Bill, Billy Paul, OJs, and then eventually like Hall & Oates. Well, that peripherally. Yeah. You know what? I, I was around people that listened to that music, and I liked it, but it wasn't what I gravitated towards. Funny enough, my grandfather was in the auto upholstery business and this was back in the day where you know old Jewish businessmen did favors for each other instead of taking money you know <laughs> if if the guy who owned the, the the men's clothing store needed upholstery done on his car my grandfather would do it for nothing and then when my grandfather needed a suit or a shirt they'd 
you know, they take care of each other. Barter. And, and uh, so I used to spend a lot of time down at my grandfather's upholstery place. And uh, anyway, that, that was the music that was blaring in the background. But he had a friend who was an executive or something with Columbia Records or a salesman. And that friend always carried around promotional copies of albums that were on Columbia Records. And he would give my grandfather a box every time he saw them. And my grandfather would give them to the grandkids. And the music given to me at the age of seven and eight and nine was Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and, you know, some other stuff, Chicago and Earth, Wind & Fire. But for some strange reason, Bob Dylan captured this little seven-year-old me, and I used to fall asleep every night listening to... um, one particular side of Bob Dylan's greatest hits, Volume Two, with hmm? "Stuck Inside a Mobile," <laughs> and the Memphis with the Memphis Blues again. That's that's my all-time favorite Dylan song, and right. I used to go to sleep to that every night as a kid. And just I suppose I just absorbed and soaked up that style of music, those kinds of sounds, and uh, probably that was the biggest influence. On my musical direction, yeah. but all subconsciously. No, yeah, it wasn't the sounds of the cities. It was the sound of what you were being given, essentially, which is kind of nice. Yeah. Thanks, Grandpa. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Hopefully he can hear us. Would you like to do another song from the new record? Yeah. Continue talking in a bit, but uh, I don't want to go too long without another song. Yeah. Which one are we doing? Which one are you doing? I'm not doing anything. Well, this is a song about uh, changing people's minds. <laughs> After three or four tries, I poked out his eyes. That's how I got him to see. To get him to hear, I screamed in his ear. I gave him the third degree. I sharply berated him. I told him I hated him. I wasn't very kind. I shouted and cussed until I won his trust. And that's how I changed his mind. I shunned him, ignored him. I wouldn't look toward him. I only would give him my back I accused him of lies I would not compromise I erased him after the fact I was abrupt I would often interrupt We were volatile when combined And in stating my case I blew up in his face And that's how I changed his mind That's how I changed his mind That's how I changed his mind Blamed him, shamed him, insulted and inflamed him That's how I changed his mind Now this man was an ass I was gonna let him pass Let him take a wide berth of me But I was right and he was wrong Like I was telling him all along Trying to just get him to see He's a this and I'm a that So we couldn't have a chat Of the friendly and civilized kind Round after round I just ground him down And that's how I changed his mind I stomped on his toes And I punched him in the nose I was using irony So sure of the truth I knocked out his tooth And I kicked him twice in the knee 
I won over his heart with a poisonous dart. You should have seen me unwind, being overly cruel and with ridicule. That's how I changed his mind. That's how I changed his mind. That's how I changed his mind. I blamed him, shamed him, insulted and inflamed him. That's how I changed his mind. And so I called him a fool, challenged him to a duel, threw my white glove in his face. Twenty paces and I shot, and I must have hit the spot. Anyway, that's how I pleaded my case. Well, I won in the end after making him bend, and after all the papers were signed. In the end, I won. Yeah, that's how it was done. Well, that's how I changed his mind. That's how I changed his mind. That's how I changed his mind. I blamed him, shamed him, insulted and inflamed him. That's how I changed his mind. I blamed him, shamed him. I might have even maimed him. That's how I changed his mind. 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 How I Changed His Mind, music from Chuck Brodsky from his latest release on Acoustic Alternatives from Grove Studios in Ypsilanti. Grove Studios, again, a studio that if you're looking to uh, rent some space, get out of the garage and get into the studio is their motto. And if you're a local musician in the uh, Ann Arbor, Detroit area, it's a great spot, 24-7 available to you to, uh, you know, get and not annoy your neighbors as much as you might if you're playing a lot of music in your garage. And I can say, sometimes it gets pretty loud in here. So fortunately today we have a quiet uh, environment and I'm very pleased to have uh, one of the best storytellers I know Chuck Brodsky in front of me talking about his new record, talking about his life, his career. We're going to talk a little bit about record in the record uh, about the record in a bit, but I want to do a little bit more uh, history digging and just idea digging. Like for instance, when you you tour and we talked about this before we started recording, you're solo. You've rarely ever played with other musicians on stage, and that's I'm sure how you write the songs. But the records, you know, are fully produced that have bands, and, and you've gone you've gone there with a producer. Do you personally come in with the ideas about the arrangements, about adding the bass and whatever other instrumentation, or do you leave that idea up to the producer? Well, I do now because my last three albums, I've been the producer. That I've noticed, and. You know, I worked with some really fine people over the years. My first three albums were produced, or my second, third, and fourth albums were produced by Christian Bush from the country super band Sugarland. I knew him when he was in Billy, Str- yeah. Billy Pilgrim. I did. Yeah, know. I did too. Yeah, I didn't know him, but you know, uh, Christian and I used to be parts uh, part of uh, you know three or four songwriter in the round nights at Eddie's Attic in Atlanta and. Um, he was a really good old friend of mine, and he produced those albums. And then I went up to Nova Scotia, to Cape Breton, and had three albums I recorded with uh, an amazing musician, maybe the greatest musician in the entire world, honest to God, named J.P. Cormier. Hmm. He plays banjo, fiddle, guitar, and mandolin better than anybody I have ever heard play any of those Why have I not heard of him? You should look him up. He's also a phenomenal songwriter. He's got lots of his own albums out. Some of them are traditional Cape Breton music, some of them are his own songs. Um, so he produced those. And, you know, I learned I learned a bit as I went, and then I felt like I was ready. I, I, 
I decided to stay at home and record in my own town with a friend of mine. The studio's not, not anything elaborate, but he himself has a great musical mind, and we get along so well we have a lot of fun doing the, the record. And between the two of us, our own ideas are, um, and we're always on the same page about stuff, and it's just a lot of fun. I felt like I had learned enough over the years to finally be able to realize my own visions for these songs because I, I would just go into the studio before and sing all my songs live and you know get the 10 or 11 of them down and then turn the whole thing over to... I'd still be around. I'd, I'd be listening to the parts that my producers either were playing themselves or, the, or bringing in other musicians to play, but... I didn't have the control, and I still think I ended up with some really great sounding records mm -hmm. working with these people, but they still weren't the sound that I heard in my head for my own songs, um, and so since I've started producing my own albums, I've brought piano to the forefront a lot more, and organ. Um, I grew up with a you know, 60s, 70s kind of rock and roll sound, mm -hmm. and the singer-songwriters of that era also, um, you know, the, they had bands back in them. And so my musical sensibilities probably come out of that Jackson Brown, Bob Dylan era. Uh, but I've been influenced by so many other things, bands like Little Feet and, um, you know, Cajun music and blues and all sorts of rock and roll and then folk music from Denmark and... Irish traditional and Scottish traditional, all of that has um, affected my musical sensibilities to some degree. And I just realized that I wanted a, I wanted a bit more control. Um, and I wanted to take my time making these records because when I would work with these producers, we would have to book a block of a week or 10 days. Yeah. And everything had to be done by it in that time, including mixing. And nowadays, um, I record my albums over several months, and during the pandemic, over a full year. And the studio's a 10-minute drive from my house. At the end of the day, I sleep in my own bed. I might not have another session for a week, or maybe three weeks or a month, come back. And I really had time to live with the recordings up to the, you know, each point and listen to them and, and you know, like I said, live with them and, and have the time to think about them and decide whether I really liked what I was hearing or not. I never had that luxury in the past. It was all shotgun style. I had a flight coming up in four days and this album has to be done. I have to leave with a finished product. Yeah. And that's not the case anymore. The album doesn't have to be done until I feel good about it. Nobody's pressuring you. It's no pressure. all on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just, I just, getting back to what I said before, I just like having, I like being the one suggesting what instrument is next. And my, my engineer, I, 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 sh I should really call him a co-producer because we just bat ideas around. He might say, what do you think of uh, bringing in organ here? Or he might say, what do you think about doing this? And he's always right. I love his <laughs> ideas. And any idea I have, he makes happen. So Good to have somebody like that on your team. It's fabulous, yeah.
Right. Well, something that you do better than most and maybe all <laughs> is you really embody the characters that you're singing about. And I don't know because I don't necessarily know the story behind every song, whether all of your songs are inspired by real people or just some of them. But for instance, you certainly aren't the man in Blom Away. That's not the kind of person you are. Yeah. But maybe you've experienced something like Warsaw and May through somebody else and you've been able to tell their story. Uh, so... As, as a songwriter in general, are you writing about truth or are you making stuff up? Everything I write about is truth and that's a dedication. That's, that's probably my, my biggest, the biggest thing I'm dedicated to doing. Now, truth um, can be represented in lots of different ways. I do like telling real stories about real people, like they're actual stories, people that truly exist. But sometimes I'll make a composite. Um, and, and what I am using to illustrate in those songs are facts, things that really did happen, but they may not all have happened to the same individual. They, it might be a composite of two or three people's experiences, especially um, that song, Warsaw in May. Um, it was a composite, but it was mainly based around um, somebody that I did in, in particular that I did read about, who was the um, the director of the Warsaw Philharmonic Orchestra and had been rounded up and put into Auschwitz and mm. uh, became a member of the camp orchestra, but he also was forced to play for the officers at night in their officers club. Yeah. So I just find there's enough in real life that is fascinating and powerful and important to tell that there's really no need to make stuff up. I'm not saying I wouldn't. I'm not saying I couldn't. I'm not saying I haven't. (laughs) But my preference really is, um, I mean, I get excited about a great story. And I get excited about trying to see if I can come up with a way of telling it. Yeah. And, you know, boiling it down to what's important to tell about it. Yeah, I, I really enjoy that. Not all the songs I write are story songs, but a lot of them are. And as you know, a lot of them are baseball story songs. We're going to get to that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we're almost there. We're actually we're on the verge of that very topic right now. <laughs> I was thinking about that. And uh, the topics that you have covered besides baseball include genetically modified foods, hatred, bigotry, love, and history. But yes, baseball certainly is is the one that seems to be what you're possibly best known for. I don't know for sure. Um, I think about something I read in the last week because I was just kind of researching some a little bit more history about you that your first baseball song was kind of a composite song. It was partially based on one particular pitcher, but then in general about washed up pitchers in general. Yeah. And then you started to write more specifically about uh, events. And uh, man, you do that. I, I don't know anybody who does it any anywhere near as well as you do. Thank who else is doing much. baseball songs? Dan Is Dan Burns? Dan Burns writes great baseball songs. John McCutcheon writes great baseball songs. Lots of people out there write baseball songs. I, I had no idea. Honestly, I thought when I wrote that first one that people were going to think it was very trite to sing a song about sports, and I was, I was gun-shy about doing it. And then over the years, I've discovered that baseball songs is um, somewhat of a subgenre. <laughs> unto yeah. itself yeah. and there was a, an entire series of CDs called the Diamond Cuts right. collection I bought them all <laughs> I think they got uh, 11 or 12 volumes of them and they were compilation albums of 
artists from all sorts of genres who had baseball songs. And Dan Byrne and myself had songs on all of those uh, various Diamond Cut CDs. But people as diverse as Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan and George Winston and, oh my God, I could go on and on and on, have baseball songs. Mm -hmm. And I've you know met all sorts of people who are not so famous that have great baseball songs and I never really intended to do this I I wrote you know that first one lefty I just wrote uh, personally to a friend for a friend that um, I grew up with and we we both really loved this one pitcher who was washed up and tried to hang on too long and I just thought I didn't even think I was going to play that publicly I just thought he'd think it was cool that I wrote this song yeah and uh, somewhere along the line, I played it at a campfire, and people really liked it and encouraged me to play it. And then I wrote that next one, Letters in the Dirt, for my dad. Oh, no, no, that came later. The Ballad of Eddie Clapp uh, mm -hmm. was the first historical baseball song I wrote. And I actually intended to write, one, write that song about Jackie Robinson. Hmm. And I went to... Remember the old Borders Books chain? I went to yeah, the Borders Books. Yeah, they're based in Ann Arbor. <laughs> okay. Well, they had a they had a branch near my parents in Philadelphia. When I was visiting, I went over there hoping I'd find a book on Jackie Robinson, and I did. I started to thumb through it, and somehow I landed on a page with a one-sentence footnote about this guy, Eddie Klepp, who was the first white man to play in the Negro Leagues. And I realized, well, that's the story I want to tell. Because no one has really told that story. No. And that led to my first, uh, doing my first bit of research for songwriting ever, you know, because I was writing about something historical. And I just got really turned on to this. I really enjoyed the whole process of researching and deciding what's important here, making some footnotes, and then trying to weave that into verse and song. You know, realizing I liked doing that, I kept, I kept at it. But it really wasn't until the third or fourth baseball song that I even had the slightest inkling that I might continue writing them and try to go for having an entire album of them. And now I have two, yeah. and a third one is hopefully soon on the way. And okay. Why not? You know, that's that was just my my thinking about it all along. Why not? You know, may, maybe nobody's ever done this before, and. How cool would it be to be the first guy to ever put out three albums of all baseball songs? You know, it's a great way to tell the stories because I mean, you learn well from a song because you can you can hear it in your head, and it's it's a great way to learn history. Period. For me, being a baseball fan as well, I didn't know some of these stories. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have known until I read that you spelled Klepp wrong. I didn't know the guy's story at all, but you know. Now I do now because of you exposing me to stories like that. I mean, I, I may have heard at some point while I was collecting baseball cards as a kid, the song that is, well, we all have like a starting point for when you fall in love with an artist or your, your first introduction to them is something. I don't specifically remember when or where it was, but I know it was Doc Ellis's no, no. Mm -hmm. I know that was the open door to mm -hmm. finding your music, whether it was mm -hmm. one of the baseball collections or just hearing the songs on something else. But mm -hmm. that was like a, what a fascinating story. I don't know if I knew that. So I continue to to follow what you were doing from there, and it just I'm it not. It doesn't have to be a baseball song for me to enjoy it, but those tend to be my favorites on your record because I I too am a fan. So it's intriguing how you can always dig up something, and I'll tell you because you know I bought these last two albums of yours at the same time. I ordered them from your website. And you sent them to me, and and 
I listened to, even though I'd already heard this one because I was uh, the folk music director at a college radio station where we got a copy sent to us, I re-listened to it first because I remember really liking this. And I will tell you again, face to face, of all your records, this is numerically my favorite album. I rate each song on a one to 10 scale. And I don't find that very often that somebody 30 years into their career releases my favorite album of their career. So far, this is it. Thank you. But I'm thinking while I'm listening to this record, and I get to the two baseball songs on this record going, boy, he really should write something about the almost no-hitter that Alamando Galarraga had. And then I get to this <laughs> album, and there it is. And he decides not to use Armando as the as the key focus of the song, because it's probably hard to rhyme Galarraga with something, but not so hard to rhyme Jim Joyce and tell his story. But again, you, you told a completely different side of the story that most people would not think about, and you, you've you just do that brilliantly. I, I don't know. There's not really a question here. It's just a wow moment for me. Like, how does he do that? <laughs> it comes Thank up with a great way to tell the stories. Well, you know, it occurred to me just that Jim Joyce's emotions in that situation and what he did in the aftermath yeah. was really the story. I mean, sure, a guy being one out away from a perfect game and you know, in hindsight, being cheated out of that perfect game. And I mean, knowing it replay was. shows yeah. that it should have been a perfect game, but it predated when instant replay was allowed to overturn calls. And We here in Detroit are familiar with that. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's a very unfortunate thing for the pitcher, Yeah. but I thought it was even more unfortunate for the umpire. And then he handled it with such grace that I thought, wow, this is a story that has to be told. And that's yeah, one of my favorite favorite baseball songs actually because of that because because of what it is you know the guy the guy screwed up royally and owned it cried about it and yeah. owned it immediately and what happened the next day was so beautiful where the tigers manager sent galarraga out to deliver the the lineup to the umpire and they had an embrace right there at home plate before the game that's powerful. Yeah, it was. And you know what? As a songwriter, I guess what I'm really looking to do is to do what hasn't been done. Because the I you know, the the oh my baby left me or I'm <laughs> so in love with you or those kinds of songs, uh, I don't knock them. I don't knock anybody for writing them, but probably ninety percent of all the songs out there are love songs. And they've been done, and I don't feel, I never felt like I could write the ultimate love song that was going to rise above the pack of millions of love songs. <laughs> and so it just never really interested me to try. Um, I wanted to find things to write about that maybe had not been, been written about yet. And I guess it's, you know, it feels like it served me well because my interest level in my own material is still there and i probably would have lost it singing you know those my baby left me songs or i love my baby so much well maybe your best one in that category is we are each other's angels because it's just a universal thing it's not a a love song to one person it's a universal love song yeah so we were just talking baseball songs and there are two on the new album did you plan to play one of those I didn't, but I could. <laughs> Sorry. It seems like a good time to squeeze another song in, and it fits with the, what we were just chatting about. Um, I'll, I'll just need to um, retune a little, but I can I can give a little backdrop great. to this song while I do it. It's about a career minor league baseball player whose name was Brian Mazzone. And Brian pitched 
he changed teams over 20 times during his minor league career, his 10 or 11 year minor league career, maybe it was 12 years. Pitched all over the world, pitched, pitched in Mexico, Venezuela, all over the US, pitched in Canada, pitched in Korea. And at the age of 31, he was in the Philadelphia Phillies farm system with their AAA club. One of the major league pitchers had a sore arm and had to miss scheduled start. And so they called Brian Mazzone up to fill in for a spot start. And that is called getting a cup of coffee, a little taste of the major leagues. You're not going to stay. You're not there for good, but you get to taste the major leagues. So that's called a cup of coffee. And this is what happened that day. There was orange on the radar In some places it was red You saw it on the TV While you were still in bed Room service brought him breakfast Good coffee as well And it could get used to staying At a major league hotel Well it was raining hard that morning And the whole day would pour And they would just stare out the window Seventh floor. The night before at supper, some joint in Buffalo. Skipper called to tell him that he was going to the show. Text messages and emails. We're blowing up his phone From all his friends and family From everyone he'd ever known His folks flew in from Boston And his wife just made her flight They all got there the next day that night And so he put his big league pants on And he tied his big league shoes While a couple of big leggers were giving interviews His name was in the lineup mentioned on the news He'd knocked around a dozen years for this He'd even pitched in Veracruz And so he walked out through that tunnel To stand on a big lake mound His tears mixed with the raindrops and he felt like he might drown He squeezed the big league baseball 
ran his fingers along the seams The rain was cruel and stung him As it washed away his dreams And I was flooded in the dugout It was a lonely place to sit He thought of going to Korea Or maybe it was time to quit And how next time they need a pitcher They'll probably call up some kid And every time thereafter That's exactly what they did Well now you can say that's baseball Especially if you never played Before the guy who worked his ass off Those dues were overpaid This was all they'd ever wanted Ever since the seventh grade Congratulations were in order Lenses were paid Well that tarp was never lifted And that storm never let up It's like he got his cup of coffee Without the coffee cup They let him keep his jersey Boxed it soaking wet And that was as close to the majors As he would ever get No, that tarp was never lifted And that storm never let up It's like he got his cup of coffee Beautifully told sad story there from Chuck Brodsky's latest record, Cup of Coffee on Acoustic Alternatives. Chuck's music is not the kind of music that you have as background music. It is definitely pay attention to the stories and the lyrics, and it's uh, a very enjoyable experience every time, i got to say. And you know what? Maybe this is a tagline for your website, but making history rhyme is what you do. I mean, really. Because you you do. I mean, I don't know how you can take a song, a story that you can't really change the story if you're going to tell the truth. But you make it rhyme and you make it work. And that can't be that easy. How long does it take you to write a song like that? I mean, you, you have the, the guts are all there. You just have to put it together, right? Well, it varies every time. And it could, take, it could take days and it could take weeks and it could take months and it could take years, honestly. It's not, no song is ever finished until it's read, until it's really there. Yeah. And my standards, you know, my, my bar has, I've raised my bar over the years. And so I won't settle or something I might have settled for is finished years ago. And I have the drive to see it through because I have had the experiences of what that reward is like to put in all the work that it might take instead of 
some of the work that it might take to reach that point. And so I don't care if it takes me years or decades. And I literally have had it take uh, two decades with one song. Thanks. It was an idea that was really important to me. I didn't get anywhere with it. I took it out a few times over the years, got nowhere. And then one day it clicked. And uh, that's just how it works, you know. I could just as easily sit down and have an entire song come out of me in a sitting. But probably what I would do in that case is step away from it for three or four or five days, come back, look at it with fresh eyes. And in most cases, I'd start looking for ways to make it better and look, see if there's anything in there that might bug me a little bit. Hmm. What song was it that took so long? Um, I have to. I would have to think. I, I on the on the spot right now. I I, okay. I can't really remember. But um, it's very important to me that everything in all my lyrics sound conversational. That they work on that level. That when you read them on a page, this the the accent falls where it should. And sometimes that really involves um, to get that to happen. It might it might involve replacing one word in that line you know maybe a, a replace a two-syllable word with a one-syllable word and then everything after that falls better into place but really lyrics are very syncopated in my mind I hear that syncopation and that's that's one of the things that really draws me to writing uh, I really like the, the fr- syncopation of the phrasing and playing around with that. So when I'm writing the lyrics, I'm, I'm hearing that bump, bump, and everything has to fall into that. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, if it's awkward, if there's anything jarring, it needs to be repaired. And that, that can be by substituting words, you know, with more syllables or less or fewer syllables to affect the rest of the sentence. Uh, very subtle things, but that's where my joy as a writer is now after all these years of writing. It's in the subtle things. It's, in in my opinion, what makes a pretty good song really good. You know, getting getting those little details taken care of. Mm-hmm. And that that's where the fun is now for me as a writer. It's, it's, it's the little details and the little bits of polish that I can put on it to take it a little bit beyond where I might have taken it 10 years ago as a songwriter. Has Major League Baseball been providing you with all of these details to these obscure stories? I mean, where are you getting the details? You come across them in real life, and and fans of mine send stories to me. And, uh, yeah, you just never know. But I did have a really fantastic alliance with, the director of research at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. But that predated um, Google becoming so prevalent. And now I don't really need his help anymore. He's still a good friend. He's, he, he's moved on. He's not in the same position anymore. But I don't really need to call on the Baseball Hall of Fame research department like I did when I first started. And fortunately, this fella... Um, who used to be in that position was a big folk music fan Mm. and really was into helping me. So if I called him up and asked him, do you have anything in the files about this fellow? 
he'd call me back. He'd, he'd, you know, he'd spend an hour looking, and he'd call me back and say, yeah, I've uh, just Xeroxed you 40 pages, hmm. and I'll put it in the mail tomorrow. Wow. Whatever great. articles they had on hand. He was a tremendous ally. But then, you know, it, it became possible to do your own research, and I don't need to call on anybody anymore. I know you've played there, so that must be a pretty cool thing as a, as a fan to have been. Yeah, and they involved. gave me a lifetime pass. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's just so fun. It's so fun to show that pass and walk into the Hall of Fame. I don't want to pay. Yeah. <laughs> as a fellow baseball fan, I have to ask you: Do you prefer listening on the radio or watching it on TV? I love both. Um, I I love the romanticism of listening to it on, on the radio, and Shirley grew up listening to games on the radio but I suppose if I my preference would be now to watch it on TV just because of all the different angles the camera angles they can show you of the play and you know I like to see it I like to see the visual side of it I do like to see it but I have to say our radio play-by-play current not the color guy because Jim Price is a little dull sorry Jim Um, but Dan Dickerson just paints the picture for me so well. I don't really need the TV. Yeah. Well, he does such a great job. As a kid, I used to tune into Ernie Harwell. Yeah, Ernie was great too. You but know, I could get from Philadelphia, I could get the Detroit station, I could get Chicago, I could get St. Louis, mm-hmm. I could get New York. So as a little kid, I used to, whatever game I could get would be what I'd fall asleep listening to and certainly listen to Ernie. Yeah, he's a legend. What's the favorite baseball song that you didn't write that you've ever heard? Tough question. That's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know that I'm prepared to answer that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I would like to. I would like to have an answer for you, but there's too much to consider. You can always email me that. <laughs> okay. I, I. I mean, I think Dan Byrne has written some really great baseball songs. Actually, some of the best baseball songs I've ever heard were by people that don't do, aren't aren't professional musicians. They don't do this for a living, and they show up at a folk festival and they sing this song around a campfire mm-hmm. and it's incredible you know this is this is what this is what's uh for real out there you know i go to the kerrville folk festival every year down in texas and sit around campfires with people that show up with their songs and they don't do this for a living but they bring these incredible songs and and some of the best songs i've ever heard in my life were by people that are not professional. So I would imagine a baseball song or two from folks like that could, could very well be up there. Yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm not very much into commercial music or pop music and so when there are people that write baseball songs in those genres and they don't do much for me. I'm really looking for the quirky, yeah. folky storyteller. Storyteller. Yeah. I think I mean, I, I consider you a baseball historian because you're giving me history lessons, and maybe you don't consider yourself one, but perhaps one of your future projects when you're, maybe you'll never run out of, out of ideas, but to chronicle the, they don't do them as much anymore, but back in the day, they used to have songs for the teams, like, we're all behind our baseball team, go get them, Tigers, and one I remember hearing as a kid. Like, there's got to be a ton of those kinds of songs out there. But I hate that stuff. Well, I know, but it's be, it'd still be nice to collect them. They're not the best songs in the world, but it might be nice to just have, as a historian of sorts, to collect them on a 
even if it's digital, just like put them all in one spot. Because I hereby pass that task on to you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Actually, um, really, those kinds of songs too cheesy for you. Yeah, I can't stand them. I mean, I, they they serve their purpose in the day, but if God, if somebody were to write one of them now, they don't do them anymore. I would, I, I would hate it. I would absolutely hate it. <laughs> I would just say this is this is garbage. It's cheesy. You're not. But the fact that I still remember the melody of the one from the '70s from the Tigers that that says something, though. I mean, it's stuck in my head. It, you know what the beautiful thing is? It's totally subjective, yeah. and everybody's taste is valid. And I'm only expressing mine, but. You know, who am I to say? I just have my taste and my preferences. Yeah. And all those songs are fine for if you like them. Well, you've been doing this a long time. And I know that when you do live shows, people in this listening room environments tend to be chatty sometimes. Do people ever shout out songs you don't remember anymore of your own music? Does that happen? Occasionally, but um, I think people would more often than not approach me privately before the show to ask me, or during the break, to ask me if I could do play remember? a particular song. I do get people calling out songs. And by then, it's it's usually too late because I, I've got a set list designed. Hmm. And I know what I want to play. Um, I've, I've kind of given it a lot of thought. And I don't want to leave out any of these songs. And if I add one, I have to cut one. Occasionally, there are times I get asked to play a song I can't remember, but the pandemic forced me to, because I was live streaming oh, we dug deeper. every week, and I'm, I just sort of made a personal commitment that I didn't want to play any song more frequently than once every four or five weeks, and that caused me to go back and relearn a lot of my older songs, so that was good for me. Hmm. Something good came out of the pandemic then. Very a lot good. of good things came out of the pandemic for me. Yeah. Good. I don't think this probably happens to you much anymore, but you because you tend to play listening rooms. But do you ever have to play where you're you're not the primary source of like are people talking in the background? And does when that happens, is it hard to to sing story songs and people are talking around you because you're? Oh, or, it's terribly hard. And and honestly, I just wouldn't do it. Uh, I would be careful not to put myself in that situation. Um, you know, and I've been very lucky since I started. Uh, I, I really stayed clear of the bar gigs because bar gigs wouldn't be right for me and I would be lost in that situation and I would have lost uh, my heart, you know, I would have, it would have broken me. So I knew I needed to play listening rooms and sure, you know, it's a, it, it's a different situation because when you play bar gigs, you can get a regular gig every week or a couple nights a week, and you'll have to play cover songs and stuff. But the audience will be there. The bar will be full every time. If you are a, a singer-songwriter just starting out, getting on the road, you're going into towns that no one's ever heard of you. Yeah. Time and time and time and time again. And right. you build your audience literally in ones and twos. And the next time you come back, hopefully there'll be five or ten more people than the last time. And over the course of 30 years, if you're lucky, you get to watch it build even better, you know, further. But as, as long as it could be a sustainable thing, um, then it was something I could keep believing in and, and see better days down the road. So I kept at it. Um, but I would have had my soul crushed yeah. had I not been absolutely adamant 
about keeping myself out of the wrong places. And, and sure, there were a few times over my, the course of my career where maybe I didn't realize what the circumstances would be like at a at a particular gig, and it was that way, and it wasn't fun, and you know, it was kind of like, what's the point? Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm not one of the, I'm not in this for the money. I'm trying to make a living, yes, yeah. but I have never and will never do anything for strictly for money. If I don't believe in it, if it's not something that I think I'll enjoy, um, you know, sure, I guess. I'll make an exception if I'm desperate financially, but by and large, um, you know, I want to keep my I want to keep my spirit going. I want to I want yeah. I don't want to get broken, and uh, I'm really fortunate. I have seen people get broken by playing the wrong gigs and lose their love of music and their passion for doing this. And uh, it was always in the very front of my mind to protect that at all costs, even if it meant making less money in the beginning. Even now, um, money was never the object as long as I could survive. And I've been very fortunate uh, for 30 years to survive. Congratulations. Thank you. I asked the question because I was at a show earlier this week where the opening acts, I think they were called the A's for Marcus Mumford's tour, were an old-timey folk band, duo. They were the Flying A's, were they? I don't remember. Two youngish girls. Anyway, um, the audience was some of them paying attention to them and some of them not. And their music was very much like, listen to it, it's kind of quiet and there's delicate harmonies. And I thought, you know, you worked with Christian Bush. What if he decided to say, hey, Sugarland's going on tour. Would you like to open for us? They would probably not pay attention to you, not all of them. Some of them would. They'd be like, oh, what's this? But it would be a situation just like that where you'd be exposed to an audience that, you know, Christian's like, hey, come on out. I'd love to expose my audience to you. And you might say yes, but yeah. you might say no, because the reason you'd say no is exactly the reason you gave me. It's because you don't want to be playing in a bar where people aren't playing attention. And that's essentially what these arenas would be. It'd be thousands and thousands of people and half of them paying attention and half of them having conversations not giving a care about you, which would be really kind of annoying. And I felt so bad for those girls because yeah. I wanted to hear them. But so many people around me were blah, 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 blah. I'm like, okay, <laughs> not the right environment for these young ladies. But there it is. But, you know, to be perfectly honest, every situation is unique, and I would have to approach each one differently. So I can't rule out ever um, playing in a situation where I would know ahead of time that not everybody's going to be listening to me. There, there could be something really positive in that experience that I might be able to see ahead of time. That, it, okay, I can, it'll be worth putting up with that for this. Yeah. So might gain some new fans, might be worth it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I want to make sure that when I get out there, um, I have my best chances of succeeding. So it's just like, Makes it's sense. just like sports, you know, you don't put your relief pitcher in, in the wrong situation where he's not going to have much of a chance to succeed yeah. in any situation in life, so... Fair enough. That's how I approach music. Um, I'm fortunate to be able to play within a genre where just about all the all the gigs are listening gigs. For sure. You know, they, it might only be to 20 people or 25 or 30 or 35 people, but they're all there for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can still make a decent living doing that. And 
at least enough to pay the bills. And that's all that matters. Before we get to the last song, I want to talk about one more topic. It's your trips that you take to Mm. Ireland and Scotland. Tell Mm. me a little bit about those. And I know there's one coming up. Tell me a bit about how those started. Like, why did you start doing that? Taking people on trips with you. (laughs) Well, my first exposure to Ireland was um, piggybacking on a friend's tour of gigs uh, around 1998 or 1999, and I fell in love with Ireland and booked a second tour for myself on my own, and a really good booking agent came to one of those shows and offered to take over, so he did, and all in all, I went over there 17 times to play gigs and Mm -hmm. drive myself around and explore, and I have completely fallen in love with Ireland and absorbed a lot from there, and... um, then sadly, my my booking agent passed away, and it's such a thankless job. There's so little money in it for booking agents. No one wants to do it. I couldn't find another that could really plug me into the same kinds of gigs. But at the same time, a fellow singer songwriter friend of mine from Wisconsin named John Smith, mm-hmm. who you may know. I know his music. I don't know him personally. John started doing these little tours for his own fans uh, with a partner in Ireland and they started out small, maybe 10 people at a time and they were great and they realized they had something and then they they met somebody who owned their own bus and brought him on board and were able to take 23 people instead of 10 and at that time, John started to ask some of his other songwriter friends whether they might be interested in leading these tours for their own fans as well through the company. And he reached out to me. And they have gone really well for me. You know, the fact that I had been there 17 times before and spent, you know, two weeks on each trip. So I really had spent a lot of time in Ireland. I'd made a lot of friends mm-hmm. there. And I, I knew the country, so it was easy for me to talk up the tours to my fans at my gigs. And once I started doing it, um, you know, I get paid well, and I get to go back to Ireland for... Uh, I do two tours every summer there now. Each tour is 10 days long, and one group comes in, and they'll go home, and two or three days later, the second group will come, and we'll do a different itinerary. The tours are absolutely fabulous, and I've done 22 of them at this point, wow. and I love them every bit as much as I did when we first started. They are incredible. These folks that run this company have honed things down to where everything about the tour is great. The places wow. they stay, the musicians that play for us, uh, the, the daytime stops. Everything about it is is great. And so that's the Ireland tours. I have a friend who also lives in Asheville, North Carolina, where I live, and she has been leading historical tours and spiritual journey tours to Scotland for the last 20 years. And it occurred to her, I've been doing these Ireland tours, musical tours, and she wondered if I might be interested in teaming up with her to do the same thing in Scotland. Well, I had already been secretly <laughs> wishing I might be able to find somebody to work with to do that very thing. <laughs> and this fell in my lap. 
Nice. And we, we planned this out, and we were all set to launch in April of 2020. Hmm. So what we, happened? I, I, I can't remember. We so postponed we, it, but in, in April of 2022, we did our first two tours, and they were incredible, just like the Ireland tours. We did a third one in September. Next year, we are expanding. We're bringing in three or four other songwriters to lead their own tours and hopefully by the the following year we'll have a few more songwriters doing this cool it's it's a joy you know to get to go overseas like that to especially to another english-speaking country where this type of music and songwriting is part of their own tradition Um, i seem to fit in well and it's it's a great joy to turn other people on to the same things that I have fallen in love with about Ireland. Scotland's pretty new to me, so I can't say that I'm really turning people on to the things that I love about Scotland. Yet. So, yet. <laughs> not, not so much as my partner in this can. So we're going to places more or less that she loves. Sure. And uh, she's wonderful. I trust her implicitly about everything. And cool. So there you have it. If anybody's interested in, in going on any of my tours, I have just a few rooms available for either of the two tours to Ireland next summer. But I just put up my 2024 dates on my website. Uh, my Scotland tours are sold out for 2023, but I should have dates for 2024 very soon. Okay. So just you know, keep an eye on it if anybody out there is interested. Chuck at uh, ChuckBrodsky.com. Yeah. Nice. Brodsky with a Y. And all the places you've been in the world, how did you end up in Asheville? Why did, why did you move from Philly to Asheville? What took you there? What's, what's, so, what's so good about Asheville? I'm not, I'm not trying to put it down. I'm just wondering. Well, there was a 15-year period in between where I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. And that's where I first started touring from, and it was far from everywhere. And then uh, David Wilcox. Yes. Who has been based in Asheville for many years. Um, we met at the Philadelphia Folk Festival, I think, in 1993, and David started to play my song, Blow Him Away, and then he invited me to open for him in Asheville. So I took him up on the offer, and I really loved the mountains there. I really loved the, the physical beauty. I loved the character of the town at the time, especially. I also had probably a dozen friends already living there that I knew through the Kerrville Folk Festival. And the other factor was that Asheville is a day's drive from my parents in Philadelphia as opposed to needing to catch a flight and yeah. if, you know, in an emergency, I could get there. So, I'll, and then the other one more factor was just geographically, I looked at where Asheville was and as a hub, to go out to different regions. I could be a lot of different places in one 10-hour drive. That's a brilliant move. Yeah, it really was, and I'm very happy there. Chuck Brodsby's been my guest today on Acoustic Alterns. New album is called Gravity Wings and Heavy Things, and I think he's probably going to play a song from that, but I'm going to give him a choice to not, because we did talk about the Jim Joyce song, which is fantastic. So I'm going to let you pick. What song would you like to do? Something from here, or maybe that, because we did talk about it, and we might have intrigued people about it. We can also tell them to go find this record called Them and Us. Well, I'd like to play something from Them and Us, but I'd like to play the title song, because I haven't sung the Jim Joyce song. Oh, okay. Perfect. Long enough that it might be risky to try it lyrically. No. Nope. might forget the words. No problem. 
and off all across the great divide with friends and family members on both sides someone struck a match it would combust scorching everyone both them and us it's raining dirty words and disrespect just not having any positive effect the bridges have collapsed because of rust we can't reach each other them and us got our earplugs in and our blinders on and we wonder where have all the flowers gone where once there was a garden cool and lush all that's left here now is them and us and I've never felt so lonely in this world are unfurled And the airwaves are just spewing all that stuff But us and them Look what it's done to us Our differences are few and overblown And this sometimes leads to punches being thrown seems to be a few things to discuss you can't say a word to them or us we write them off for the way they vote and we write them off because they came on a boat we turn our backs contempt and with disgust every one of them who isn't us we identify them by the clothes they wear we identify them by their skin and hair and we do them it's not like us and I've never felt so lonely in this world as I do when all those banners are unfurled and the airwaves are just spewing all that stuff about us and them look what it's done to us Thoughtful, decent people turning mean If only all our gods could intervene For there must be 
some controls they could adjust Maybe they could make us whole Them and us And I've never felt so lonely in this world As I do when all those banners are unfurled Just spewing all that stuff About us and them Look what it's done to us There's a standoff all across The great divide With friends and family members On both sides Them and Us, the title track from the recent, but not most recent album from Chuck Brodsky, came out 2018, right? Do I get that date right? Yeah, 2018. And uh, I, I got to thank you for your time and your storytelling. If people are just finding out about you from this podcast, which is always my goal, um, obviously I've already sung the praises of the new album, how it's my favorite. But if you want to start somewhere other than this, buy this one and then try two sets. It's a great introduction to his old music. It's a live set. It has a lot of funny stories. Strip down acoustic, much like we had today, but uh, keep exploring beyond there because there's so much to learn from Chuck. His stories and songs and everything. Just thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me in again. Pleasure. Thanks for reaching out to me. A pleasure. I'm, um, I, I know that at least fans in Michigan can always look forward to a visit in October yeah. in the Ann Arbor area. So if you're uh, in this area and you're watching or listening to the podcast, follow that. If you're a musician in the area and you need a place to practice and not know your neighbors, remember Grove Studios. This is where I'm doing the podcast from. If you're a podcaster, it's another another option for you. Uh, check it out at Grove Studios. And then, again, Chuck, what a pleasure to see you again. And I hope that we cross paths again soon. I do, too. Take care. You, too.